As we jump into Psalm 32 here, I think most of us are familiar with the context. Um, I think it's, it's obvious given the, the content of the psalm um, that David wrote this after his horrific sin with Bathsheba after killing Uriah. But most importantly, after requesting and receiving God's forgiveness. Uh, so often like David, you know, we disobey and then we invent a multitude of reasons not to confess our sins and we stay silent and we do not confess. We think, well, if I confess, you know, there's going to be all these uh, consequences of that. And so we lie even more and we go about our day groaning and miserable um, because we have not confessed. And so David writes Psalm 32 to essentially say to us, trust me, I know I've been through this. Stop being a mule and just repent already. Just confess your sin. Right? God is great in mercy and he will forgive. So this morning, if you want to write down an outline, we're going to divide the psalm up into five things we need to do to fully experience God's forgiveness. And I'll repeat them as we go along. But the first is rest in God's forgiveness. Second, be tired of your sin. Third, confess immediately. Fourth, heed counsel. And lastly, celebrate God's forgiveness. Well, let's, let's read this beautiful psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and, who, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them, otherwise they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we beg of you this morning that you would grant by your spirit that we could be quick to confess our sin and to experience the joy of your forgiveness. We thank you for being the God who you are, a God full of gracious love, that you would love even your enemies, even those who rebel against you. We praise you for being that God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I think we, we know the context here of David's sin uh, with Bathsheba. Um, you know, he's uh, a man who not only sinned, but then tried to cover up that sin. He, he clung to it. He concealed it. Um, he's a man who, you know, covered it up for 
we assume about a year's time, because uh, one of the consequences for his sin afterwards was the death of the child that, that he um, had with Bathsheba. Um, and he, David became so callous with that sin that God finally had to send Nathan to him, the prophet, to, to confront him face to face. And through God's great mercy, uh, God melted his heart and brought him to confession. Um, he acknowledged his sin. Um, I think you remember also Psalm 51, another psalm written kind of after the same event. Uh, David understands he couldn't make any sort of sacrifice to atone for his sin. He was an adulterous murderer. Uh, he knew that he deserved death, so he did the only thing he could do. He just appealed to God for grace and for mercy and for forgiveness. And, you know, nearly, what, nine, ten months after his original sin, uh, God's forgiveness rushed upon David so quickly, I think, he, he writes this Psalm 32 to kind of describe that moment of what it felt like just to have all that burden, all the lies just lifted from him. Uh, in the context of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, when David comes to him, it, it's so quick how it happens. It says, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Then it says, and Nathan said to David, Yahweh has put away your sin, you shall not die. It's just like this immediate response that, that God forgave him. No penitence, you know, no 50 Hail Marys, no purgatory time. It's just he confesses and instantaneously God forgives him. And I think Psalm 32 is kind of a, a description of that blessed moment um, where he sort of exudes and, and says in verse 1, how blessed, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And the, the point of the psalm is to motivate us, right, to confess quickly. So first point, verse one, rest in God's forgiveness. That's a familiar phrase to us in the psalms, how blessed is the one. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Three lines here, this triad, three synonymous phrases, pounding home the same idea, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. And the, the key when we're in this sort of Hebrew parallelism where you got these multiple lines kind of talking about the same thing, the key is not to try to contrast the, the phrases, contrast the meanings of the words, but to see how their different meanings complement each other. Transgression, sin, and iniquity, they all have you know, little different connotations, but together they sort of give this exhaustive, comprehensive covering of any sort of disobedience. Transgression, you know, usually refers to a, a direct rebellion, an affront, affront against God. It is to, to trespass God's law, to step over the line willfully. Um, and, and that's obviously important because David is a murderous adulterer. He, he did so willingly. That's not an accident. The next word, sin there, is the normal word that refers to disobedience. We've all heard the illustration that to sin is to err, um, and you have the, the text there in Judges where it's used in the context of an aiming a, uh, a weapon and missing the mark. Um, but it's interesting, oftentimes when we use that illustration, uh, it gives the idea to people that, you know, we're, we're trying really hard and we're aiming right at that target and 
It's like we fire and we just barely missed. And I think a closer illustration would be you're in this archery contest and you don't want to be there and you're angry at the judge and so you take a good look at the bullseye and you turn around, look at the other way, find the son of the the judge and you shoot him and kill him, hitting exactly where you wanted to. Uh, Our sin is horrific. Our sin is terrible. No, all sin misses the, the bullseye, but... Just, just know that even our most righteous acts do not even come close to measuring up to God's holy and perfect standards. Our, our arrows are nowhere near the bullseye of God's righteousness, which is why we need to repent. And the third, third word he uses here, iniquity, right? this act of perversion, it's twisting something. Um, so again, David heats up these terms to, to motivate us to repent. Because there's no reason to remain silent. This psalm, it really does just exalt the mercy and compassion and kindness of God. That there's nothing that you can do that he will not forgive. There is no unpardonable offense. Other than, of course, rejecting his forgiveness, rejecting Christ. But it's against the very nature of God to withhold pardon from a repentant individual. And that's... An important point to make here, because David's not just picking three random words to describe disobedience. He's actually quoting Exodus 34. When when God proclaims his name to Moses, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, low to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the same three Hebrew words that David uses here in Psalm 32. David is appealing to the merciful nature of God, saying, God, I know that by nature you forgive these things, so so do it. David is showing us, he's pleading with us, don't you see how blessed you would be if you would just run to God? I know he'll forgive you because that's what he's famous for. That's his character to love, to forgive. His heart is to forgive those who confess to him. David also uses, obviously, three words to describe this forgiveness. Forgiven, covered, and not counted against. But before we look at those terms, notice that David does not say, blessed is the person who does not sin. How happy would be the person who never sins? Well, that, that wouldn't help. The the psalm is not written for the well, it's written for the sick. The psalm is a sinner pleading with other sinners. You know how happy you're going to be if you would just stop covering up your sin, if you would just confess it? How happy is the man that though he sins, finds forgiveness in God? The, The first verb there, forgiven, has the sense of something being lifted, something being carried away. God has taken away our burden as far as the east is from the west. He adds that the sin is, is covered. Right? And again, <laughs> we're not talking about some little mistake. This is David committing adultery, David murdering. Sin is a stain that's impossible for us to cover. It's impossible for us to remove. In Jeremiah 2 says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares Yahweh. David says that stain can be covered 
in such a way in which it can never be seen. You can't cover up your sin, but God can. Right? It's like God killing an animal in Genesis 3 and covering Adam and Eve, covering their nakedness with its skin. We're covered. And the third verb there, blessed is the man against the whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And I love this verb in the Old Testament. It means to, to consider something, oftentimes, for what it is not. Uh, like in Genesis 31, Rachel says that her father considers her a foreigner, though she's his daughter. In Genesis 38, Judah considers Tamar to be a prostitute when she's actually his daughter-in-law. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it's the same verb there that, that Abraham believed God and God considered Abraham to be righteous, though he's obviously not living in righteousness. So the point is not whether Abraham was living righteously or not. The question is only how Yahweh considered him. David says, how blessed is the man who God sees and says, that's a righteous man. He has no iniquity. One of my favorite, favorite verses in the Bible is Colossians 1.22, where it describes how Jesus one day is going to present us to the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The Father in all his blazing holiness is going to look me, look me down from head to toe and, and find nothing to reproach, no stain. That's how thoroughly Christ has washed us. Just like in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God considered Christ, though he was with no sin, though he was righteous, God considered him as sin, so that now we who are full of iniquity can be considered righteous. And I think David's point is, if there's that much joy, if there's that much happiness in having our sin covered and living free of guilt, then, then why do you wait why wouldn't you rush to enter into that blessed state? Why wouldn't you want that joy? And I think the answer is because we do not believe that our shepherd's heart is as gracious and merciful and kind as it actually is. Unlike the prodigal son, we think, if I, if I go to God, maybe God will reject me. Maybe he'll think less of me. If I come to him all filthy like I am, and if you ever think that, you do not know the heart of God. You do not. He is so loving. He longs to express that love to those that have hurt him. It's an amazing God. Last stanza, verse 2, it says, And in whose spirit is no deceit. Which is funny. It feels like that phrase kind of doesn't fit. The first three were perfectly parallel. Then he kind of throws on this, in whose spirit is no deceit, like what he's talk, what, what's he talking about? Well, I think it's, it's like a caveat. The point of David is that only the man who holds nothing back, only the man who confesses everything is going to be happy. He doesn't hide a single sin. There's no deceit. There's no false pretext. He's describing genuine repentance, one who has truly confessed all of his transgressions, sin, and iniquity. He's not lied. He's not faked anything to God. David's motivating us to hold nothing back, to bring it all to God and lay it at the feet of Christ. So in this first point, 
David is recounting this blessedness, this happiness of knowing that God had forgiven him. He was clean. He was washed from his sin. Now, it's going to describe how exhausting and how terrible his life was before he confessed, before he came into that state of blessed happiness. So point two, be exhausted with your sin. Be tired of your sin. Second half there, verse three. Forgive me, right at the beginning there of of verse three, it says, when I kept silent, (laughs) the idea is that everything went wrong. My bones wasted away. I was groaning. And the point is that he kept silent. He didn't confess. You have to confess your sin. You have to speak it out to God. Now, obviously, the point here is not that you have to publicly confess every time you ever sin. You don't need to ask for pulpit time on a Sunday morning to come and, and, and tell everyone what you did. The point is that you have to confess your sin to everyone whom you sinned against. Right? So, if, so if you, you know, cursed on a, on a basketball court in front of nine other guys, you need to confess to those people that you sinned against. Right? You don't have to confess things to everyone. Um, but David is describing the, the miserable state that he endured when he kept silent and did not confess. And he says, my bones were old, felt decrepit. I was exhausted. I was spent down to the bones. And this is not when you, you feel tired after a long day of work and you just need to sleep. Right? You see, David is describing this weariness of the soul that sleep cannot fix. He was worn out. Because he was actively suppressing the truth. For a believer, especially for us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, it takes energy to fight against God in unrepentance. Right? Just that notice, end of verse 3, he adds that he groaned all day long. This is an audible groan. Most of the time this verb occurs in the Old Testament, refers to a lion's roar. It's like, ah, just screaming out like, all day depressed. All day. And you see how illogical sin is. David is trying to show us how illogical our actions are. Right? We know the pleasures of sin are cheap and fleeting. We know we'll suffer. We know we're going to suffer if we don't confess. We know we'll lose our joy and be miserable. And we do it anyhow and then wallow in our misery. Verse 4, he says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David's not ignorant here. Like he felt convicted about his sin. He knew his weariness came from God. He knew it was God's hand upon him. The heavy hand of God on his life convicting him. David's conscience is accusing him. He knew that God was aware of his sin. He's the one who writes in Psalm 139 about God's omnipresence, about God's omniscience, that he knows everything. But he refused to repent. And again, the point, let me remind you, David writes this after being forgiven so that we don't live in the same misery that he experienced. He's describing this pain to encourage us to confess quickly. Until you confess, know that you will go on in this state of moaning and groaning and wasting away under the heavy hand of God. Second half of verse 4, it says, His strength, his vitality was turned into a drought. Like his tongue felt like a desert. He was so dehydrated, he couldn't even stand up. I don't know if any of anybody here has been that dehydrated. 
You need to go to the ER and receive fluids. Well, this is worse because its root is spiritual. (laughs) It's not going to be fixed by a few electrolytes. The only way for it to go away is through confession. And what's interesting here, I don't think this is just spiritual. You know, we are the union of a material and immaterial part. And I think we can all testify to the fact that sin affects our whole being. Right? As believers, when we sin, we don't sleep well. We don't rest well. We don't eat well. Food loses its flavor. Life loses its joy. When you have unconfessed sin in your life while you remain silent, if you are a Christian, you will mope about your day just like David did, depressed and exhausted. And if David experienced it like this in the Old Covenant, how much more we who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Not just anointing us for a mission like he was doing with David. No, the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. He, James 4, yearns earnestly, jealously for our affection. And when we defile the temple in which he dwells and grieve the Spirit, you better believe you're going to notice that. (laughs) Holy Spirit doesn't sleep inside of the believer. He's alive. He's active, convicting us of sin. And we're going to feel that discipline. But this is a grace, is it not? Isn't this the, the great mercy of God? When we feel the heavy hand of God upon us when we are in unconfessed sin, right? that, is, that is God disciplining you because He loves you, because He longs to bring you back into that blessed state of happiness of living in the light of His forgiveness. Right? Praise His holy name that He in His kindness afflicts us until we repent. He is so gracious, He will not let His child remain silent forever. He will not leave us alone in unrepentance. He always applies the rod. It'd be much easier for God to just let us go. But his heart of forgiveness seeks out the sinner. Seeks out the sinner and drives us to return to him. I mean, just think, what would have happened if David had flourished and thrived after his sin with Bathsheba? What would have happened if his deception had been successful? If Nathan had never come, would he have repented? Would he have confessed? I don't know. This is the kindness of God, that God preserves us by putting a stop to our sin. What's the, what's the worst thing that God could possibly do to a human being? The worst thing that God could ever do to someone is to prosper them in their sin. And so we see in Romans 1 and 2, that if an unbeliever insists and persists in their sin, at some point God says, you want to sin? Be my guest. And let's him. Let some treasure up wrath for the day of judgment. That's a horrifying, horrifying thought. God never lets that happen to a believer. The grace of God always stops us. Sooner or later, if you are a child of God, he will bring you to repentance. And the question is this, if God's going to (laughs) win, if God is necessarily going to drive you to repentance, why not repent now (laughs) when it's going to be a lot easier? when the temporal consequences of your sin will be less severe, right? David's point is don't get so far down the road like I did that God has to humiliate you in front of the entire world like he did with David. If you are his child, God will not let you remain in unrepentance. You'll be miserable every moment until you confess. So just repent already. That's the next point. Point three, confess Immediately. 
Verse 5, David is still recalling this experience. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I made known my sin to you. Notice the triad of words again describing sin just as before. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Again, if you want God to forgive all your sin, you must confess all your sin. Notice also that David confessed to the Lord. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Just as he explains in Psalm 51, when he says, against you, against you alone have I sinned. David recognized that while he sinned terribly against a number of individuals, at the end of the day, every sin is first and foremost a sin against the lawgiver. So confession needs to start there. Against you I have sinned. And again, the word cover is being used here. So we got this nice contrast. David saying, I did not cover my sin. And that brings us back to verse 1, the blessing of the man whose sin has been covered. So if we connect the two verses, the point is that the Lord covers the sin of the one who does not cover it. Right? You cannot successfully cover your sin, but God can. And then I think in a similar way as we saw in, in Samuel, there's no transition. You just get confession, and then immediately the text says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. No, no wait time. It's as if David is just like crying out to us, like it was that quick. You won't believe it. Just confess already, and you will immediately be launched into the joy of forgiveness. Because that's how, how God is. That's his nature, full of mercy, full of kindness, full of love. So don't wait. Confess quickly. Verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. In other words, pray now, not tomorrow. Don't be the fool who thinks he can confess later. This might be unfixable tomorrow. Because the more we sin, the more impossible, the harder it becomes to confess. David knows this. David's son, David's sin, it probably started with laziness. He doesn't go out to war. And perhaps greed snowballs into adultery, deceit, murder, deeper and deeper and deeper, harder and harder to find forgiveness, harder and harder to confess, more and more people you have to confess to. So David's telling us, beware if you are clinging on to any sin, because that sin, if left to harden, will be tougher to deal with tomorrow. Just pray now when God can be found Now, obviously, a true believer can never lose their salvation. A true believer can never get beyond God's forgiveness. But I think his point when he says, if you're holy, you're going to confess, is that, right, it's it's those who are not holy who wait so long, they find out they were never a child of God to begin with. We have so many verses in, in the Bible that speak of this concept of apostasy, right? The author of Hebrews reminds us of Esau, right? That after trading his birthright, right, he desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's Hebrews 12. So he wanted the blessing so badly, like he's longing for the blessing. But after so much rejection, after all of his actions, he found himself in a place where there's no going back. There's no way to repent. So David says, don't wait. Confess now received a prompt forgiveness. And if you wait, you might get to the point of no return. God might say to you tonight, fool this night, your soul is required of you. So 
confess now. Right? The Holy One is the one who confesses. And then so beautiful, second half of verse 6. The flood of great waters will not reach him. Right? Why? Because they confess, they repent, and God forgives. God is always faithful to preserve his children. And I think David is really just reasoning with us here. Right? He, he's addressing all of our excuses for not repenting. And we ask ourselves, like, what normally prevents us from confessing right away? Why don't we confess immediately? Well, there's pride. There's fear of public shame. Considering my own reputation. Like, what, what are people going to think of me if I confess? Right? We think that we're going to be overwhelmed with shame and guilt. We think that the, the result of confession is going to be like just being swallowed up by this flood of guilt and shame. And David says, no, it's the opposite. <laughs> the consequences of confessing your sin will not be nearly as bad as the consequences for waiting. If you confess to the Lord, he promises not only to forgive, but to protect you. Yes, the rush of waters will come. Surely the flood of consequences will come. However, if you confess, it says the flood of waters will not reach you. You will not be drowned by those waters. David keeps talking about this in verse 7. The Lord is a refuge, a hiding place where no one can find him. I think the idea is if I confess my sin, even if it's a public sin, sure, people might say certain things, but I'll be hidden in the shelter and fortress of God, protected by him, preserving me from trouble. Trouble describes this, this narrow road with pressure and difficulty. Yeah, it'll be difficult, but God's going to be with us if we confess. So again, the idea is making this contrast between those who remain in unconfessed sin and those who confess. And David's saying, if you refuse to confess, you're going to walk alone and sad and miserable. But if you confess, God will accompany you, preserving you, protecting you, and filling you with joy. And notice there at the end of verse 7, I think kind of the crescendo of the psalm. It says that we'll be surrounded with shouts of deliverance, songs of salvation. I think this is a picture of just the amazing heart of our shepherd. Right. So often when we sin, we lie to ourselves. We convince us that we convince ourselves that God is going to be unhappy with us. We prefer to lock ourselves up in a castle of despair, wallowing in self-pity, depressed and sad. And God comes to us in Psalm 32 and tells us that he wants us to find our happiness in his forgiveness. And not only that, not only will we be happy as a result of our confession, he will be happy. His heart loves to forgive, right? Who's the one surrounding us with songs of salvation, right? When he says, when he says, you surround me with songs of deliverance, right? Jesus is singing, singing over the person who confesses. Like, just to show us how, how he longs for that, to motivate us to confess our sin. Jesus doesn't forgive begrudgingly. Jesus isn't like, oh, again, Josiah? <laughs> like, really? For the same stupid thing? For like the a thousandth time? No. 
Jesus is, is singing songs of deliverance over the person who confesses their sin. Jesus loves to forgive. Amazing amount of love. It's just, it's just almost impossible to believe, isn't it? We don't confess because it's just like, God couldn't be that great, could he? He is. <laughs> He's the one who's revealing his heart to us in this psalm. So David instructs us as one who knows, right? What, who knows what it's like to have this heavy hand of God upon him and then to have all of that just removed, to rejoice David's not done. He gets a little bit more direct in his instruction. Notice verse 8, a fourth point, heed counsel. He says, I'll help you understand. I'm going to show you the way and take you step by step. Now, obviously, we should not sin in the first place, <laughs> right? But, but David sort of directs his thoughts toward the sinner after he sinned. I think it's kind of like 1 John 2, 1, right? I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do sin... Just know you have an advocate, the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, this is David after sinning, after confessing. This is David who lived for months in agony until Nathan had the courage to come and to confront him. And I think David, in a sense, wants to be Nathan to us. He wants to be the one to kind of shake us out of our illogical behavior. He's fulfilling the vow that he made to the Lord in Psalm 51. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 51. I remember in Psalm 51, 12, he says, you know, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then what? He says, and then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David's saying, you know, forgive me, God. In Psalm 51, forgive me, please. Let me remain in my ministry as king. And if you do that, I'm going to make it my mission to get sinners to return to you and to confess their sin. That's why he's writing Psalm 32. Make good on his promise to turn us from our wicked ways and help us to confess our sin. Since the end of verse 8, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, Scholars argue whether God or David is speaking here, but the point is the same, that our teacher here is not teaching us from far off, not teaching from the front of the classroom. He's going to come and personally sit next to you. He's going to supervise you with his eye upon you and help you do your homework. Because this is important. You've got to get it right. He's going to make sure. You can't afford to miss this. He says, do not be like a horse or a mule. I was laughing because uh, Josh said after the sermon last night that the point of the message was we're stupid sheep that need to trust in our wise shepherd. So if you want to take away for today, <laughs> don't be a dumb mule. <laughs> confess your sin right away, right? If you sin and don't confess... You are a mule with no understanding, no logic. They're foolish animals. Who wants to be like a mule? They don't obey. They don't walk straight in the furrow where you want them to walk. David says, verse 9, you have to control them. You have to force them with a bit in their mouth and a bridle on their necks. And you see, David's point, once again, is that when you act like a mule, God has to treat you like a mule. You have to be forced to obey, and that's going to hurt. 
wouldn't it be easier to just obey? Right? Again, God is sovereign. God will have his way with you if you are his child. He will get you home. But it's going to be painful. Very painful if you won't confess right away. Now, beautiful part here, the last line of that sentence. They are curbed with bit and bridle. Why? Because if they won't, they won't stay near. So you see what God's after, right? You see God's heart. He wants us to stay near to him. He wants to love us. So he wants to, us to draw near to him in confession and commune with him. Well, finally, verse 10.5 celebrate God's forgiveness. Celebrate it. David begins by describing the, the misery of the wicked who do not confess. He says, verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, manifold, lots of pain, lots of suffering awaits you if you don't confess. David's just sort of begging us at this point, right? Don't remain silent. You're going to be miserable. But, he says, steadfast love, kindness, grace, surround, they overwhelm the one who trusts in Yahweh. Trust in Yahweh that if you confess, he will forgive and you will find yourself in his favor, blessed and joyful. If you trust him for that, he will surround you with kindness. Uh, it's such a rich word, steadfast love, speaks to God's faithfulness. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. It would be unfaithful for God to not forgive the one who confesses to him. He always forgives. He always keeps his word. And finally, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And this is kind of an interesting, interesting conclusion because you might think, okay, the person who's happy is the righteous person who's upright in heart. The person who doesn't sin. And someone's like David is saying, okay, if you don't sin, then you'll be happy. Well, that can't be the case. Because again, that, that wouldn't help us. That wouldn't have helped David. And if that's what we're thinking, we've missed the whole point of the psalm. If that's the point, then, then David would have no reason to rejoice. The righteous and the upright in heart of Psalm 32, the godly man of Psalm 32 is not the one who doesn't sin. The righteous man of Psalm 32 is that blessed man who, though he has sinned, has by the grace of God confessed that sin and found himself in God's forgiveness. And I think that's why David drives that point home by finishing off the psalm with three verbs. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Because that kind of triad of verbs traces itself all the way back the triad of verbs that we had at the very beginning of the psalm. And so if we ask ourselves, who's the blessed man? Like, who's joyful and happy? Well, he's committed sin and iniquity and transgression. But God has forgiven. God has covered. God has not counted those things against him. And so now he's rejoicing. Now he's glad. Now he's shouting for joy. Now he's reveling in the very heart of God knowing that God's love is so exuberant that it has overflowed to me, a rebellious sinner, and given me a complete pardon. You know, there are only two types of people in this world. 
And we see that a lot in the Psalms, right? Psalm 1, right? There's, there's the righteous and there's the, the sinner. Uh, and in this Psalm, David describes only two types of people. Right? The one who covers his sin and refuses to repent. Well, that's the person that groans about his days only to receive eternal judgment in hell. But then there's the happy, the joyous ones who confess their sin. They know they can do nothing but trust in God's mercy. They know they deserve death. But just like David did, they trust that Christ died their death to free us from the wrath that we deserve. And now God treats us like we are righteous as his son. Not because we no longer sin, but because all of our sin was transferred to Christ on the cross so that all his righteousness could come to us. And God longs for us to live in the joy of that knowledge that we are forgiven. Did you know that it's a sin to forget that you were forgiven? God so desperately wants you to live in the joy of his forgiveness that he prohibits you, he commands you not to forget that. I think 2 Peter 1, we'll close here. 2 Peter 1 makes this point probably most clearly. In 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter is kind of describing all of these morally excellent things. Uh, starting in verse 5, he says, To apply all diligence in your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, says, verse 8, if these things are yours and increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 9, for in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Why are you unfruitful? Because you've forgotten. You've forgotten the joy of God's forgiveness. You've forgotten that in Christ you have a full pardon. That God's heart is so full of love and so full of mercy that he longs to love even his enemies. I don't, I don't know what sin you might be hiding this morning. There is unconfessed sin in your life and the pressure of being a member of a Grace Community Church, the fear of consequences loss of reputation are keeping you from confessing your sin. That's, that's a mule talking who has no understanding of who God is, no understanding of God's heart. May we be quick to confess and quick to enter into the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and eternal love that invites us to revel in their love. Let's pray. Father, what a gift your word is to us because it shows us who you are. And we struggle. I mean, we're so, Father, we're so wicked. We find it so hard to forgive those who hurt us. And it's hard to believe that you could be as good as you are. And we beg you, Father, this morning that by your spirit, you would just open our minds, that you would illuminate our minds to understand the depth and the breadth, height of your love. Do also pray if there are any among us who 
are harboring sin in their life, she would use this psalm to break them of that pride and, and cause them to run to you. And that today, they can experience your joy. Mm-hmm. Amen.